Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Angler. I am going solo for a few episodes as a co-host. I am here in the illustrious Dave Bodie Studios. Uh, we are brought to you by Browncroft Community Church, and we respond to the questions that you don't feel comfortable asking in church. I'm pretty sure today uh, the question that we're asking might be something you've thought about. And the question is, is this, why is prayer and reading the Bible not the only solutions. So we have a fantastic guest. His name is Jeff Holsclaw. He's an author. He's a pastor. We'll uh, let him share a little bit more about himself. But Jeff, let's get started. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh, it's great to be with you. It did like the temperature dove and like now it's rainy and it's a Friday. So it's like, it's hard to motivate myself to do anything. So, and I don't think... <laughs> Reading the Bible and prayer is going to get my motivation back to where it should be, but perhaps it will. <laughs> well, but do, I'm doing well. Well, just to let our listeners know, it's raining in Rochester. Where where are you recording from? We're Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, man. There we go. The, you know, good old. And it's little... like 37 degrees. It's like, oh my gosh, it's <laughs> almost June. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, let's get started. Why don't you introduce yourself and then just kind of connect how you got, I wouldn't say passionate, but how this question kind of matches with your story. Yeah, well, so I'm a, I've been a pastor for about 18 years. Uh, currently, I'm in a role of family and youth ministries. I share that with my wife. Um, I'm also a professor of theology at Northern Seminary, which is based in um, Chicago. So I've been doing that for uh, quite a while. And then I, I recently just launched a, a podcast myself called the being with podcast on neuroscience, spiritual formation and faith. So these are kind of things that I've been interested in for a while. And I think the thing that got me um, started all this was um, my wife and I, and the, my wife started and then I joined, she was kind of in this prayer group, um, kind of more of an experiential contemplative or conversational kind of prayer group. And it was bringing in the findings of like neuroscience brain science as a way of assisting people to connect with God. And they just talked about, and we'll get into this, you know, in the episode, but they just talked about how practicing gratitude uh, is a way of warming up what they would call the, your relational circuits. And so it was a way of preparing to be with other people and that you could actually create better relational encounters if you prepared yourself through practices of gratitude and appreciation. Uh, and so it was just like learning a couple of things. I was like, oh, that's interesting that like a physical or relational practice could actually help my spiritual life. And so that kind of, you know, that was probably 10 plus years ago. Uh, and then, so we just been in and around it for a while. This idea of God with us uh, is kind of this really important thing that, and my wife and I ended up writing a book about it and things. So, yeah, so it's just been a really interesting kind of exploration. I've found that I've done my own kind of personal therapy <laughs> and gr personal growth uh, throughout the process. So I think the reason this question is important, you know, both you and I as pastors, I'll assume maybe at some point, like you've given the solution, well, you should read your Bible and pray. You've also received that solution. Why do you mm -hmm. think, you know, Christians, when they're faced with something like what you said, um, even with gratitude or we can go to more serious things like anxiety or depression. It just, it seems like this past year has opened these up and it's like, that's the only thing that it seems that it can feel like Christians say, 
Why do you think that is? Well, so, you know, I teach theology, I teach church and culture class, so I have a long answer. I'll try to keep it short, but I think there's kind of three Let's go three long. Reasons. Let's go long, man. Oh, let's go long. Let's yeah. do it. How long do we go for? A two-hour two episode, right? <laughs> um, well, so I think the first one is cultural. So we're in the West, and we're inheritors of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And so our world is very, like, um, mechanical and, and mechanistic. We think that if we create something, you know, we have ingenuity. And then if we add power to it, you know, and we crank out kind of the steam engine and the, you know, the water mill and then the automobile and all these types of things, you add power to it and then things will change and they'll transform. And so we have this kind of idea that knowledge plus willpower equals transformation, whether that's personal transformation or spiritual transformation. And so the knowledge is like the Bible reading. So you need, you need more spiritual, you have a spiritual problem, you need more spiritual knowledge. Uh, and then prayer is like soliciting God for, <clears throat> in faith, soliciting God for, you know, that, that power. And so I think like, so culturally, we very much have this idea that information plus willpower equals transformation. So that's kind of like the cultural reason, I think. Then we just, we also have a religious reason, which is connected to being in the West, um, particularly I'm assuming most of our, you and I and listeners are kind of Protestants um, who have this sense that, well, the Bible is God's sole authority with solo scripture. We don't have tradition. And then in certain, tradi- in certain kind of faith communities, you're very skeptical of sciences, medicine, and social science, psychology, these types of things, you know, that, and historically they have set them up as uh, other truths to the gospel and they've, you know, actively attacked religion. So there's some reason for all that. Um, but we, you know, we also, you know, it's by, by faith and grace alone. So we want to put all of like all the effort into God. Like we just need to believe that God's going to change us. And that's important. Uh, so those are important truths, right? Uh, so we have a cultural religious reason, but I think we also have personal reasons, which is, you know, in our own brokenness, our own kind of confusion about how to live, we want shortcuts and kind of knowing more stuff is a shortcut than doing the hard work of like excavating the soul or kind of learning the virtues and characters or entering into community. Uh, so those, those things are hard. This is, it goes all the way back to the garden of Eden, right? Like taking of the fruit is the shortcut, you know, we want the shortcut. Uh, so sometimes even though it sounds spiritual to read the Bible and pray more, that might actually be a shortcut. Uh, you know, I come from a more charismatic kind of tradition. So the shortcut, there is like, well, go to the the revival meeting and get like, you know, the real famous speaker to lay hands on you. And then you'll get the shortcut of being filled with the spirit and that'll solve all your problems. Or I'm sick and, you know, well, just get someone to heal me or something like that. So I think we're always kind of looking for shortcuts. So those are kind of my, my big to little or kind of cultural or personal reasons why I think we struggle with, uh, and, you know, I'll just say as a paid pastor, and as a professional who teach, trains pastors, you know, you want to keep things in house. Like <laughs> you need to read the Bible and pray more. Cause that's like my job description. And so those are the things I, I give what I know. And so I think there's, you know, part, part of it comes into our home pastoral training is, you know, if this is the only thing I have to offer. Of course, that's what I'm going to keep offering. I'm really glad you, you went long on that on purpose. Um, because I, I think that that explains a lot. You know, before we kind of dive in, though, you said something about the Western mindset versus the Eastern mindset. And I'm sure some of our listeners have dabbled in 
you know, Buddhism, mysticism, you know, and, and I guess what's so different, you know, and about the Eastern mindset than the Western mindset, you know, kind of pro and con that even, would they even ask this question, I guess, kind of from your perspective? Well, one, I wouldn't want to overblow the East-West kind of, you know, distinctions, but they're certainly there. So I think one of them would be individualism and kind of community. And so we in the West, we do think it's all of our kind of, it's up to me, it's up and, and to my actions. So my knowledge and my willpower will lead to transformation. And so I think that that is kind of one of the things is that spiritual formation in the Bible, if we were to read the Bible that way, is very corporate. And so it, it involves other people and that the deepest kind of things that are going on inside of me are really only going inside of me because of the relationships I have with other people and the way I view the world. And so these things are all very connected. So I think the kind of the outside of the West kind of perspective kind of more readily has that understanding that everything is connected and um, and they have relationships, causal relationships between them. So that'd be one. I think another one, uh, we could look at like guilt and shame. In the West, we have more of a guilt kind of framework that when we do the wrong things, we're guilty. Whereas outside the West, it's more of a shame, which is my relationships and how I am bringing honor or dishonor to my key relationships is more important. So again, it's more relational in that sense rather than individualistic. So I could be guilty myself, but shame and honor is things that are happening between and among us. Um, so those would be kind of uh, the two kind of main ones off the top of my head. Um, but when people, I've had someone tell me like, uh, like I'm leaving Christianity because we, you know, like Christianity doesn't have any spiritual practices on meditation and contemplation. And I'm going to Buddhism for that. And I was like, I understand that maybe the fundamentalism you were raised in, uh, didn't know about spiritual practices or meditation, but <laughs> the whole Christian tradition has really deep and substantial resources for these things like contemplation and meditation and union with God and all these types of things. Uh, so sometimes people think that, you know, you have to go to the East or outside of Christianity to find some of these other spiritual resources. And that's just not the case. So I, I think what I hear you saying, I, I don't want to get super nerdy, but you know, oh, her, let's do it. Let's do it. So, <laughs> you know, you have Horatio Alger, you know, in the 18, 1900s, who writes all these books about, you know, these individuals that overcome odds, live the American dream. And in some ways over these past a hundred years in everything in life, because we've had this individual mindset, there's kind of, we're burned out, like, because we just can't do it on our own. And again, the, the pendulum can swing the other way with communal living that we can't make a decision without kind of checking in and there's a whole tension there, but I think that's what I'm hearing. Does that sound a bit right or kind of the direction you'd head? Oh yeah. The, the kind of, uh, very American, not just American, but very American power of positive thinking, self-help kind of mentality. Uh, and they've done, it's really interesting because they've done psychological studies that the more successful you are and the more money you have, the more apt you're to tell your life story as if you did it all yourself. And you actually edit out. It's really interesting. You And Benjamin Franklin even did this with his own autobiography. autobiography is you edit out all the, the ways that you were dependent on other people for your own success and for your own wealth and for your own power. And that you kind of, uh, the brain actually reorganizes and reorganizes itself to kind of think, well, I did all these things by myself. 
uh, and people who um, don't have the same level of success and power when they talk about the ways that it succeeded, they're more apt to tell a relational story about all the people that, you know, that have helped them succeed. And so th those things are really interesting, you know, that in the West with the more wealth and more power, success, technology that we have, the more likely we're to tell these individualist stories. And that's not, and that's like a, a neurological reality. Well, well, wait a second. So our pastors, he, he pastored in Dallas, Texas. So for some reason, he's been quoting Barry Switzer, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And he says, you know, there's a bunch of you out there that, you know, you were born on third base and think you hit a triple. How does that affect our spirituality, especially when it comes to this question? Because you just kind of touched on it. We can't, I feel like in this moment, it's important to kind of stay there for a second. So I think we often, for good or for ill, like we put everything on our on our decisions. Like I made these decisions. I'm a good person because I made good decisions. I'm a bad person because I made bad decisions. And certainly the Bible, and so I want to make this really clear. The Bible, Christianity says we are responsible for our decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sin is lodged uh, or connects to us personally. But the Bible is very clear that sin is kind of this power, you know, in, in Romans 5, Paul says that sin has a kingdom or a realm or the or this realm of death. And so there, so there is kind of this, it's a transpersonal power. And so generational sin or however you want to think about those things. And so sin is kind of this big thing, but it's also a personal thing. And so I, and I think we need to hold those two things um, together. And so my sin and my reality is connected to my decisions. Now, why do I keep making bad decisions? Well, it's not just because of my willpower. Maybe I grew up um, with a certain kind of view of, of people or my age, my own ability to make decisions, or maybe I was too dependent on other people, or maybe I was abused and traumatized. And so I spontaneously make these decisions that I later regret. Now is Bible study and prayer going to change those spontaneous decisions that I later regret? They're actually probably not going to. What you need to do is kind of figure out those stories, those kind of implicit memories that, that how your nervous system, which is pre-conscious, how it's been trained to react to stressful situations, to threatening situations. And unless I do that work, then I'm always going to read the Bible and I'm always going to engage in certain prayers um, that maybe aren't that helpful. Mm. And then eventually, and this happens to a lot of people and to many of your listeners maybe, Eventually, I just give up because I'm not seeing the change that I want from reading the Bible and praying. And so I just give up doing those things. Maybe I keep going to church. I put on a face that says everything's okay. And we start pretending in the whole Christian thing. And it's it's not that Bible study and prayer are bad, but it's that there are these other layers, you know, kind of written into our own nervous systems that we probably need to be more aware of. And so part of my own journey was I need to become more connected to my body and I need to learn to name my emotions that occur throughout the day. Mm. Uh, so I need to learn when I am mad and then I need to be able to say like, oh, I'm feeling mad. Well, what does feeling mad feel like in my body? Well, actually my throat gets really tight when I get mad or my hands get really hot. Uh, so then, you know, before I know that I'm mad, my hands might get hot and then I can tell myself, oh, I'm mad, right? So I'm becoming more attuned to my body. There's other people that are way too attuned to their body, right? So they need to be attuned to other things. And so, uh, once I started growing kind of in my own bodily awareness and I increased my emotional vocabulary, that actually helped me learn and grow in my prayer life. And it actually started changing how I read scripture. 
let's get let's drill down super specific you know so you've talked about the journey that you've been on walk us through you know just that journey i i don't know if anger maybe came out of anxiety or depression but like what was it like before and what was it like when you became more aware maybe you went through therapy and all of our listeners know i'm married to a mental health therapist so uh believe in it but you know kind of walk us through pre-Jeff to kind of this awareness to kind of where Jeff is now. And again, it could be anxiety, depression, or or something like that to help our listeners just really grasp what you're trying to say. Yeah, well, so anxiety is great, right? Because now we have, we have Bible verses that you get beat over the head because of anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and petition, present your request to God, right? So that's uh, Philippians 4, 6, uh, in, uh, Matthew 6, 25. I tell you, don't be anxious about anything in your life, what you eat or what you drink or your body, because the birds have been taken care of, you know, have taken care of all these things and your father knows what you need, right? So even Jesus is like, don't be anxious. So then we can kind of like guilt ourselves for being anxious as if we could think our way or willpower our way out of anxiety. Now, sometimes you can't. So like, uh, I just got a furnace installed um, and an air conditioner because it was like, We've lived in this house for a couple of years, but it's a really old house. It's the original furnace, right? So now I have anxiety because my bank account just got a lot smaller, right? The savings account is a lot smaller, right? So now I kind of have this kind of, you know, mid, you know, I wake up at, you know, this happened just a couple of days ago. I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm anxious, right? Because I'm like, oh, that money is gone. Um, but that's low level anxiety. So, you know, there's a practice that I do that others, you know, I just kind of say, um, you know, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I just kind of like pray that over and over. So I am praying that, right? So I'm doing, and I'm reminding myself that God is trustworthy. And then I can engage in a practice of, well, let's see. So I've been married for 20 years. I've been in ministry 18 years. Have I ever been hungry or without a house uh, or without transportation that I needed? And have my bills not been paid? No, there's never been a time that those things have not happened. So I can rest secure and believe that God will continue providing, even though my bank account is not where I wanted it. And it's changed drastically since two weeks ago. Uh, so those are kind of low lying kind of anxieties. And so we can kind of, we can maybe talk ourselves out of those, uh, but, but reminding ourselves. Um, but sometimes, you know, I tell people this too, you're anxious, maybe you're just tired. And so sometimes there's physiological reasons for our anxiety is maybe this isn't a full-blown spiritual crisis or maybe all your relationships, you know, aren't awful. Maybe you've just been eating potato chips while watching playoff basketball. You know, I'm also guilty of that. Uh, or maybe you're just staying up too late um, and you just maybe, maybe you need to sleep in for like two or three days and then I'll get back to you and see if your anxiety is still at the same level, right? So sometimes we just have physiological reasons for anxiety. And I think... Uh, before I knew all these things, I would just go straight to a spiritual crisis. Oh, maybe God's punishing me for sin. And that's why I'm so anxious. Or maybe God's hand of judgment is upon me. And maybe, and I believe God may do those things, but not every time. Uh, so sometimes, you know, check your diet, you know, I, when I turned 40, I could not drink coffee after three uh, PM without it ruining my sleep cycle. Right. So things happen, you get older. Um, but what do you do for like maybe more um, higher levels of anxiety? Well, higher levels and persistence, anxiety, stress um, are probably indicators that there's something in your body 
or there's something uh, in your kind of deep relational memories that is off, that has been, you know, that is calling for attention. Uh, so maybe you have a belief that things are not going to work out in the world, that you fundamentally believe that the world is not good. So this comes from early childhood trauma. Or maybe you come from, you have this idea that you don't really belong, that people don't really want you around. Like that's going to make you anxious. If that's your fundamental belief. That's going to be difficult to you know, exist with people. Or maybe you believe that your actions don't matter, that they they can't contribute. So those kind of three questions just come from attachment theory. It comes from like, are you securely attached to people in your relationships? And if you're not, you're going to have kind of underlying persistent anxiety about your relationships, about your worth in the world uh, and things like that. And reading in the Bi reading the Bible and praying more won't change those core beliefs. Actually, what will happen is you'll read those core beliefs into the Bible. <laughs> uh, so uh, I had, there was, we, at our previous church that I ministered at, we did a lot of reading of the Bible out loud. And so we do uh, a Psalm, we do an Old Testament reading, an epistle, and a gospel every week. We do these four readings. And there's this one gentleman that kind of always read angry uh, or very stern. He'd always like, if he was reading the gospels or the Psalms and it was God, he was like, God was always very stern. And I was like, is God really like that? Or is he, but I found that I do that too, is that when I'm reading the Bible, because the Bible is just like text, right? So you don't get the verbal tones. You don't get the body posture, which is a lot of the communication of these things. And I would read into those things, a really stern tone, but is that in the Bible or is that me, right? That's my kind of mental model of how I believe God is treating people or thinking about these things. And I'm importing that into my Bible reading, but then I'm hearing it as if it's God's word to me, but that's kind of not, it's just an echo chamber of a bad thought pattern. Uh, and so unless I go to, you know, depending on how deep it is, unless I go to, you know, maybe like a men's group or, you know, some sort of small group where you can kind of get at some of these issues, maybe you need to go to therapy, maybe addiction recovery or something like that. Unless you kind of intentionally peel back these layers of some of these beliefs, they're just going to, you're going to find them in scripture and you're going to find yourself praying them. Uh, but that's not really the transformation that God wants for you. And so that's why um, sometimes we need to look at our relational habits, uh, as other people have said, Jim Wilder and some other kind of neuro theologians, you know, they talk about, well, you need to increase your relational skills in order for your spiritual connections to keep growing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why sometimes we plateau in our own kind of spiritual journey is because we've kind of maxed out our relational capital, our relational capacities. Um, so we get stuck. You know, this, this gets me thinking my wife for Christmas, um, I think she was trying to be helpful. She might not have been communicating to me, but she she sent me the book. Or she gave me the book uh, "Managing Leadership Anxiety" by Steve Cuss. And, oh yeah, my wife just got that. Yeah, so um, it's one of those books when you get it as a gift, you're like, "Huh," and <laughs> uh, you know, with her being a therapist. But I think you know what you're talking about with the bodily form. Like even as I thought about this question, I'm more like aware. Um, so, you know, for example, now I don't always feel necessarily like you were talking about warm hands or something, but my mind just races. And if there was anything physical, my mind starts racing and then I can feel my heart beating. I'll walk faster. So, you know, when I get really anxious about something and I've even noticed this, you know, my wife and I, we, we tackle tasks very differently and we have a 15 month old. Um, and we have a three-year-old. So we're in this beautifully complicated, exhausting 
time of life because you start something and then someone's crying and you can't get there. And so for me, like not knowing when the end of the to-do list is, is really, really difficult. Um, and there's probably some core belief about, you know, feeling like I'm never going to measure up or, and we don't have to go to my Enneagram two stuff. Maybe we'll get there, but, <laughs> um, you know, not being wanted or something like that. But I think what I've realized, even with what you've said is, yeah, like all of those verses, don't be anxious, like, and, and God holds tomorrow, like all of a sudden now they're becoming judgment. But when you're aware of those issues, you know, now I actually see them very differently. And we've talked about this on the show a number of times, but even where Paul, I think, understands neuroscience a little bit more, he's not just saying, don't be anxious. He's saying in prayer and supplication. And that book is a communal book. It's even saying, no, no, redirect your anxiety. And I think even that's what you're saying. And, you know, Tuesday night, it was a, you know, we felt, both my wife and I felt really stressed. I had to go mow the lawn and I didn't, uh, y'all keep listening to podcasts. I didn't listen to a podcast. I just mowed the lawn. Mm -hmm. And what that hour and a half did was I, I got back. I was tired, but it was in a healthy way. Like I needed to stop my mind spinning. And so I think what I'm hearing you say is a lot of just kind of, you have to take, you didn't come with this big, huge moment. Like you went, Hey, I just paid for my furnace. That's kind of what it, and I think even it's capturing those moments, you might find something deeper. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, how we kind of frame them. I, I think for me, my journey and kind of just being more open to like, what is my body telling me? Um, just have it ha has led me to more compassion for myself. And that's what I think maybe that's a main theme is um we need to have more compassion for ourselves because we we do things spontaneously for reasons we don't know. Why am I anxious about money? Uh, I'm generally not anxious about money. Uh, why am why in this context am I worried, but in most other contexts I'm not? Well, you know, we could beat ourselves up, but or we could say, well, there's probably a good a good reason that this context is triggering me, or however you want to talk about that. Uh, and then, uh, so I'm going to do my best that I can right now in this moment. And then maybe later I'll kind of circle back and want, you know, and kind of dig through my past and maybe there's a story or, a a lie that I tell myself about myself, uh, or a lie that I, I say about my wife or, or about God, you know, uh, and then I need to kind of confront that. Um, but even what you said about mowing the lawn, like, you know, and I tell my kids this too, you know, when they're really upset at a brother, it's just like, you, you need to go outside and run, you know? So why don't you. <laughs> You know, we would just tell our kids like, uh, or, and I do this, you know, with people who are, who are anxious too. Um, like, what is your exercise like? Like, it's been proven that regular exercise helps with anxiety. Uh, it kind of flushes your your system. It releases different um, hormones and all these types of things, right? So if we can get into our bodies, uh, it kind of <laughs> shuts our brains down. And some of us, and this others of us need to kind of do the opposite. And so some people do need practices of meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, because they're too in their bodies or they're too in their emotions and they kind of need to let their brain take over. If you could say it, something like that. Um, so yeah, those are, I think self-compassion has been a huge kind of realization is, uh, can I have a compassion on myself for the things I'm doing? Uh, even, but not as an excuse, 
right? So if I believe that what I did was wrong in the way that I treated my wife, then I need to address that. So I'm responsible for my actions. And yet I can have more compassion for the way that I blew up about that issue because I've come to realize that that issue goes back to the way I was treated by my family or, or whatever. Uh, and so that situation is really hard for me to act the way I want to act. And now I have to be responsible for that and then grow. So it's, it's a both and kind of thing for me. Well, I want you to explore more because, um, so I can think some of our listeners, like we grew up with the four spiritual laws and like the first one is like, you are sinful. Um, and mm -hmm. we've used words like depravity and anytime we use a term like self-compassion or, you know, love yourself. It seems that there's a group of pastors that um, just be like, well, that's hogwash. Like, why would you do that? And you kind of did it, but I, I think let's get in the mind of Jeff. Like when, <laughs> when do, when does the gospel really display self-compassion? And Obviously, too, I think all of us can say, you know, we've been quoting this a lot. I don't know why, but, you know, Parks and Rec, you know, uh, you know, Tom Habershaw, you know, treat yourself. Like, when does it become unhealthy? You know, maybe you can walk through some of those situations because I think it's really important for our listeners to hear that. Because if you think, oh, I need to read the Bible more and I need to pray more, you're probably judging yourself for, I don't know, I'm being worried. You're only making that happen more, but there's other people that that self-awareness isn't there. So walk us through that. Sure. Well, you know, it kind of goes with the saying of like hurt people, hurt people. Uh, we pass on the pain uh, that we haven't processed as like another kind of, you know, therapyism and things like that. And so what I say most often so when I'm preaching or teaching, uh, I will say, um, you know, you have sinned and you've been sinned against. And so there's always these two things. And so I I don't just spontaneously sin, usually. I mean, sometimes I do, right? I want those three cookies and I'm gonna pretend, you know, I'm gonna take them all or, right? So we spontaneously sin, but so often we're kind of trained into sin, either through bad examples, through our family or kind of our loved ones, or we're trained into sin through abuse or neglect and things like that. And that our sin is really, also a coping kind of mechanism is why well, do these things because i don't know how to handle the pain that i was given uh you know i was abused i was raped or um my dad was an alcoholic and he was violent toward me right so i had to survive that situation in some way and those survivors survival skills at you know sometimes it's super young right if you're in a car accident when you were uh nine months old that is going to traumatize your nervous system and your nervous system forever will say, I don't want that. And it'll actually like, you know, it'll turn you into a certain kind of person dealing with, you know, maybe you can't deal, you know, anyways, we don't want to get, but so it could be developmentally at all these different levels where you've been sinned against through neglect, through accident or through an act of abuse. And so your nervous system and your mental models get locked into a certain way. Um, and, and those ways that they're locked into create sinful patterns in you. And so you do sin against other people because you get really angry and you don't know why you get angry, but it's really a fear or it's the anger that your dad taught you to have. Right. Mm. And so the self-compassion says, um, well, so probably what we're training to the guilt is, yeah, I did that and I should not have yelled at my nine-year-old son 
for having spilled milk on the ground. And um, I need to ask forgiveness from him because I yelled at him. Okay, so that's true. I need to take responsibility. But I also need to have compassion for myself um, because I got yelled at that that way all the time. And I don't know any different. I wasn't trained any different. Um, but now that I have that information, I can, I can have compassion on myself. And now I have a better kind of roadmap beyond just read the Bible and pray. I have a roadmap that says, when I'm in my house and my kids do something I don't want to do, it's very likely that I'm going to get very angry. So what am I going to do to mitigate that situation? Uh, and, and then you try to find solutions and then you ask for accountability, whether it's from other people or from your wife or whatever. And then maybe part of that work is to go to your father and to confront him or to ask for forgiveness or to do right. And so there's always these two things of I sin, but I've been sinned against. And sometimes there's a direct connection between how I'm passing the sin forward and how it was passed on to me. And so that's kind of, and so that's why when I talk about sin, I say, well, in the Bible, Paul is pretty clear that you are a sinner. We are sinners. Okay, so we're sinners. But he's also clear that sin is a power mm. that has a kingdom that has a rule and a reign and that Jesus has come both to defeat that power of sin in the world and to forgive me of my sin. And so he does both those things. And I think too often, at least in certain kind of evangelical or conservative circles, you just focus on the individual forgiveness of sin that you've committed. And you kind of forget that Jesus has come to deliver us, to free us, to liberate us, to redeem us, or all these kind of different biblical words, um, has come to do those things for the sin that has been sinned against me um, and that I can be freed from that power. And that's also why we're, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out into us, the Father's love poured out into us, uh, Romans 8, right? That's important, you know, because I need that power of God's love to help try to transform and reorganize my nervous system and my internal stories that I tell myself and give me the power to make better decisions moving forward. That's really, really good. Um, I want to shift our perspective because I want to get more in the neuroscience. Um, so you mentioned growing up charismatic. I grew up Assemblies of God. Um, I actually grew up fundamentalist. I'm currently in a charismatic church. Oh. And I've been on a journey that way, but I was raised like total cessationist fundamentalist. Yeah. Well, well there you go. There you go. Um, well, anyways, I'll, I'll never forget um, Nightline with Ted Koppel. Um, they do this whole... Um, story about speaking in tongues with, I think the pastor's name is Jerry Stoltzfus. And literally they're watching the brain of this pastor speak in tongues. And again, we have listeners that probably are stationists. We probably have listeners that have no idea what speaking in tongues is, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a prayer language in the Bible, complicated, highly debated, but long story short, you know, these neuroscience find that, Jerry's brain is very different when he's doing that. So I I tell you that story to kind of set up, you know, we're, we're not saying don't read the Bible and don't pray, but I think what right. we are saying is there is something that happens in our brains, in our hearts, um, even in our bodies, when we engage these practice practices in a healthy way. What are some of those connections similar to that that you might say that people might not understand or recognize? Well, um, so a friend of mine, Chris Corsi, um, he wrote a book called The Joy Switch. And this is uh, the idea. So if you, you know, uh, if you if you have a brain, brain in the palm of your hand, if you kind of cover your thumb by your fingers, 
this is the, the idea of the brain in the palm of your hand where your wrist is your your kind of brainstem kind of your thumb under your fingers is your midbrain or the limbic system and then your kind of your finger knuckles are all the kind of prefrontal cortex that makes us super brainy as humans right um and so he says and a lot of other people uh that's a that's from dan siegel who kind of came up with that but if you kind of flip all your fingers up um this is the idea that sometimes we get relationally triggered dan siegel calls it uh, flipping your lid and so when you do that uh your brain your primary fight flight or freeze kind of uh, responses kick in the kind of survival responses and what you lose is what some people call the social engagement system you lose your identity center or your character you kind of lose logic and reasoning you kind of you literally stop seeing people as clearly you can't hear their words as clearly it's this really interesting physiological thing that happens when you're in a threat mode um, you're more likely to be scanning for threats and you don't read people's facial expressions very well anymore so people kind of become you know invisible to you right so all these things are happening neurologically when you flip your lid when you're in a crisis uh, and so you're not engaging with people and that's why when you calm down you say oh i can't believe i said that or i can't believe i did that well you are kind of a different person and so learning those type of things um then you want to say uh how can i if i've if i have flipped my lid how can i return back to myself the true self or however you want to talk about that well there's practices for doing that some of them would be maybe go outside and run get back into your body kind of get all that adrenaline or whatever it is out of your system others are um and he talks about it so in the joy switch uh chris Corsi, he talks about just, you know practices of gratitude and appreciation so if you're in a fight with somebody and they've triggered you and you're really upset then you you say hey uh you start naming things that you appreciate about them or you name memories that were happy and what that does is it tells your body like this is not a life-threatening situation like you actually like that person you've done lots of things that you've appreciated that have been you know that have flourished your lives uh so you remember those things, you kind of unflip your lid, you integrate your brain uh, back to a relational status rather than a threat status. And then you can kind of continue to uh, move on and move forward. And so when it comes to spiritual disciplines um, or practices, um, you need to be doing those things in community with other people. So you practice those kind of habits, those relational habits uh, as a way to bolster your spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits and so we want to keep the practices of prayer of fasting of scripture reading of serving other people also um scripture memorization all those types of things those spiritual practice the things we think of as spiritual practices we definitely want to keep doing but we also need to do those things which are you know maybe i need to eat and exercise better um can i uh, maybe i need to remember my life story better i need to be more autobiographical you know who was i and how was i as a kid and um what are the things that made me afraid when i was nine and ten and you actually maybe need to remember those things because they're coming out in your relationships in some fashion you're just not doing it responsibly right or maybe i need to become like i said before more aware of my body or my emotions uh so those are things that dovetail with these other spiritual practices I don't. I felt like I just started talking and got off topic. Was that addressing the question you asked? <laughs> you you did uh, because I I think it's making those connections. Um, you didn't pull Michael Scott who says uh, I I start sentences and I don't know where they're going. You you went there. So <laughs> okay. Well, because I it, do that though sometimes. Well, no, it's all right. Um, 
what it got me thinking of, um, you know, again, we, we talk about Enneagram work here and I'm just going to go there. So as an Enneagram two, I think one of the things that I notice is, you know, I create these narratives. So, you know, I want to help people. I want to be seen as helpful. So for example, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, when someone doesn't respond to an email, um, from me, I'm already creating this. They must be angry. They're ghosting me. They're upset. You know, they didn't respond to my text. Um, but you know, this is where like you couple therapy, neuroscience, and even the Bible and prayer all together, because, you know, at, at some point, number one, what you just said there, like, you can be grateful for this. Like we've had some good times. The other thing is like, just the realism, like you don't have enough information to tell yourself that story. And then like number three, like even just, you know, God search my heart right now. Am I trying to overcompensate? And, and I think what you're doing is you're giving people a framework for when these things happen, because, and this is kind of where, where I'm going with this. We've lived in the past year of the pandemic of the election of, um, you know, just the conversation, the racial reckoning of everybody's lids being off. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of allowed us not to have conversations in ways that are super helpful. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. Right. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I have a couple of friends who are like for the last year, but really it seems like for the last decade, we just live out of our amygdala, our fight and flight responses. We're kind of our, our, like you said, flipped brains, you know, we've lost our minds in that sense. And I think that, I think that is true. Um, and so, and I, I, I think that a lot of Jesus's ministry was kind of to help people acknowledge those types of things. And so when he says to like, pray for your enemy, um, well, your enemy is the person that's most likely to trigger you or to make you flip your lid. And so why does he tell us to, you know, he tells us to, to love our enemies, right? But he also tells us to pray for it. And I see that as a, as a practice, a spiritual practice that could maybe uh, help move us toward that love of our enemy. So when you're praying for them, you bring them before your mind, you know, to bless them in some way spiritually. But just thinking of someone who has harmed you and bringing them to your mind is going to create a physiological response like that of anger, of frustration, of fear. Um, and then as you're praying for them multiple times, you know, I assume Jesus meant more than just once, uh, you're going to learn how to process that physiological response, or you'll stop having that physiological response eventually, because you will, through the prayer practice of God bless, of seeking that God would bless them, um, you're changing your response, your physiological, emotional responses to them such that then when you might actually see them in person and not just bring them before your mind in prayer, you might actually be able to move toward love um, in their very presence rather than just kind of mentally. And so I see, you know, I think Jesus was very aware of all these types of things when he teaches us, you know, how to live and uh, how to pray and all these types of things. And so uh, even the Lord's prayer, you know, the different petitions, you know, I'm praying for daily bread. So that's, you know, you're asking God to provide for your physical needs and it helps you believe that the world is good and that you'll be provided for to forgive others as you've been forgiven. That's transforming your relational needs and the, the different problems that have occurred in your relationships. You're seeking to take care of them even 
as God has taken care of your relational needs. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Those are the spiritual realities that you're saying, I have no control over that realm. Uh, but God, like, help me, protect me, lead me through these types of things. And so um, those are, um, and the more neuroscience and kind of psychology, relational things that I've learned, the more I've been able to appreciate those types of things like, oh, when Jesus is telling us to pray for our daily bread, like, you know, it could mean all these different types of things. I understand that it could mean, you know, some, some traditions interpret that as just like Bible study actually is that, you know, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right. So then that goes back to the Bible study. But what if it meant more than that? What if it is daily provisions and all these types of things? Um, and so I think that um, those things really kind of help integrate how we read the Bible. And so uh, that's, what's, been really interesting for me is the bible reading that has kind of come about uh when i read scripture i'm like oh the psalmist is really grappling with this like um you know this emotion and now that i'm more um i have a, a richer mo emotional vocabulary for myself now i can read the psalms which are very emotional and i can kind of understand the emotions whereas before when i was very flat in my own understanding of my own body and my emotions you know when david or others would say my whole body cries out you know and like he's talking about his body and his emotions i'm like all of that has went over my head uh but now i feel the richness of that um so just two more questions this has been a very helpful conversation um i think you're even giving me uh i do podcasts for my own free therapy so uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, me too. Uh, there we go. So, uh, I want to, I want to kind of come back to just the whole neuroscience and, um, psychology. Cause again, you're bringing in different disciplines. I'm going to come right out and say it. I'm a pastor of small groups. Some people call them missional communities. Some people call it community. So again, I want to yeah. tell my listeners, I believe in this, uh, but I don't want to be heavy handed. So help our listeners understand um, why it's important to have intentional community. Because if I'm listening uh, on the other side, you know, um, and again, I, I don't want to be one of those pushy pastors that like, hey, it's important for you to go to a small group, you know, of 10 to 12 people. Uh, it's not just biblical, but to have that discipline, it's not going to feel great every week. It's not going to be awesome. Um but, and again, it's not, that's kind of the tactic. The strategy is you need some intentional community in your life, yeah. you know, but tell people or help them understand maybe even the psychological benefits. Cause even what we're saying, you know, we just did a, we just did an episode on why you should read the Bible in community. Well, you read the Bible in community because as we've said, you're sinful, you've been sinned against, you're limited in your perspective. You need other people. Um, help people understand the community aspect, maybe even from a psychological sense that they might be missing. Yeah. Um, well, true spiritual formation only comes through community. So I'll just start. So absolutely. Uh, anecdotally, uh, like people, I hear from people like, um, I'm going to go to a different church because like, I'm just not sure if like the preaching is really, um, I, I've, this happened about it two years ago is, is challenging me is challenging me enough. The, the preaching here is not challenging me enough, uh, to which, uh, then this kind of came through our, uh, a different pastor. Uh, and she responded, this other kind of the worship pastor responded with, 
our, che- our teaching is plenty challenging. It's the relationships you're finding challenging and that you don't want to do the work. This, I mean, she really confronted this person. It was like, the relationships here are hard. Like that's the whole point. Like that's where the work is. Like finding a church that's just going to kind of like put a laundry list of things you need to change in your life. That's not the challenge. The challenge is actually doing it. And you do that in community and you do that in smaller groups of community, depending on how big your church is. If your church is a hundred persons or less, then you can kind of get to know everybody in different contexts. But if your church is really large, you need small groups. And so, um, so that for me is, yeah, if we're going to talk about relational capacities, you're going to find out really quick where your relational capacities are when you're in long-term committed relationships with people that kind of annoy you or that you don't always understand or have different political beliefs. Right. Uh, and uh, if we don't join those communities, then we can just ignore that stuff. And then we're not growing that stuff. And then we're just going to end up being, we're going to judge ourselves by our Bible knowledge and our prayer, ha- our personal prayer habits. And then we feel like we're following Jesus. But, um, and so we might pat ourselves on the back, uh, but that's not actually the transformation um, that, that God wants for us. So, so that's kind of like the big picture. I think more of the neuroscience would say something like, you know, God has made us to attach to people from the very moment we're born. Um, we're attaching to our moms who are feeding us um, in a very kind of close sense. We are the the human babies, the original facial recognition software, like babies can find faces like so early in life, right? So we're, we're seeking connection constantly. Now, the speed of life is fast, but our left brain we could say or our conscious life or the life that we kind of like hear thinking in our own heads is very slow it processes very slow uh, and so that's why you end up doing things that you regret later because when you're thinking kind of yourself narrator however you want to talk about that when you're narrating self catches up to the speed of a crisis or someone who gave you a bad look or to someone who honked at you or on the freeway uh, you might swear at them back, but then you're like, oh, I shouldn't do that because the Christ-like thing is not to do that. So how do we get our discipleship to speed up to the real speed of life? Well, that happens through um, relational patterns that kind of get imprinted, not in our left brain, which is the talking kind of logical linguistic brain, but actually in our right brain. Uh, and how do how do you change those working models, as they're called, in our right brain about how I should respond to this kind of situation? Well, those only change in community when you see someone else who's in a similar situation respond differently than you would spontaneously respond. So when we talked about why do I do things I regret? Well, because you were kind of trained that way. So how do you untrain that? Well, in community, you surround yourself by a more mature Christian who has a kid barge in and spill their coffee while wanting to show them uh, their latest drawing. And instead of responding angrily, you see them respond with patience. You see them say, oh no, well, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, and you see them respond in love toward their kid. And you're like, wow, I didn't know that. I literally didn't know people could respond that way to their kids who barge in and spill their coffee. Uh, and so that image gets implanted in a different part of your brain because you saw someone else do it. Uh, and it may, and part of your brain doesn't think that's possible, but another part of your brain starts believing it is possible to mm-hmm. act that way. And when you start getting in community, and that only happens in community, just because your pastor up front tells you that story, that might help a little bit. But when you actually see it at the speed of life, someone respond differently, someone not get angry at someone else's anger, someone not um, adopt the anxiety that someone else brought into the room 
all right, speaking of leadership anxiety or something like that, when you see that happening in real time, all of a sudden the relational parts of your brain, which move faster than the kind of linguistic linear parts of your brain, it starts believing that you can respond differently. And when you get enough of those models, this is called the imitation of Christ. This is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ is we need to see these living examples and that can't happen by reading and that can't happen by praying alone. You have to be in community, seeing those live interactions um, and then processing your own interactions with other people. Um, and so that's why in a nutshell, small groups are important. How was that? Did I help you out? <laughs> oh, I, I think you did. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you later for that um, in heaven. Um, so, well, this this isn't my book, uh, so I'm not pushing my own kind of oh, book. But uh, by um, oh man, it's, I should have brought it downstairs with me. But it's called the other half of the church. And so everything I just said about like the right and left brain or the fast and slow processing. Um, Mike, let's see, Michael Hendricks. Yeah, Michael Hendricks. Uh, also Jim Wilder. So they wrote this book called The Other Half of the Church. And they just kind of go through that. They say, our character, the things we call character, personal character is more lodged in our nonverbal right brain that acts faster than our left brain. Um, and so how do we change character? It's by surrounding ourselves with people who are more mature than us so that we can be drawn into their kind of spontaneous responses. And certainly left brain activities like prayer and Bible reading, those help. Uh, so they're not wrong, but they're not going to do all the work. We have to surround ourselves with other more mature Christians. Well, uh, you know, it's always good when you can throw yourself under the bus. But like before I met my wife, I had some friends that, you know, in a very kind way said, you eat very unattractively. Like they just, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, you know, I changed my ways with my wife and stuff like that. But, you know, I learned how to, you know, just eat like a human being, not an, um, something else. So, you know, again, it, it's those types of conversations, like you're just not aware um, of that. So yeah, I think that that's really important. Uh, let me, let me kind of close with two questions. First one is this, is there something you wish people would ask you about neuroscience, the Bible, prayer and theology that you never get asked? I don't know. I get to talk about whatever I want most of the time. <laughs> Uh, well, the kind of the thing that I'm learning about the most right now that I think is really fundamental. Now, if, if you've kind of been in therapy or certainly um, adoption and kind of had to deal with what's called um, RAD or was it reactive attachment disorder. Uh, so this idea of attachment, secure attachments with God or what are insecure attachments. Those are really, I don't have tons to say about it right now because it's all just a big jumble. But I think for me, I love the Enneagram, but I'm, I'm like, I think if we understood our attachment styles better as people, as pastors, as even congregational, I think whole organizational systems could have these different styles. Um, I think that would probably help our, um, our discipleship quite a bit. Um, and so those are some of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, as far as the Bible goes, you know, just to kind of, the thing I'm always talking about is the main story about the Bible is God with us. It's not a story about us. It's not a story about God. It's God with us. And too often we make it as uh, we read the Bible as if it's trying to answer the problem of sin, which it does. Amen. And hallelujah. But that's not the main story line that God is trying to fix, which is humanity fell into sin. How are we going to fix that? 
I think the main storyline is um, humanity has left the presence of God, which because of sin, um, and God wants to desperately offer his presence to us again because God knows that only in his presence can we find meaning and purpose and life. And so God is actively trying to offer and bringing his presence to us. That's the whole idea of the incarnation is God, mm -hmm. Emmanuel, God with us, came to us. Uh, but I think the whole Old Testament story reads the same way. We often just kind of focus on other things. Um, and so that's kind of my big, my big life project, I guess, you know, God with us. Hey, uh, ne next podcast, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on for that. So there we sure, go. Sure, send me a note. <laughs> Love it. Uh, we close every episode um, with a question. Uh, what does Jesus have to do with this topic? So, you know, what does Jesus have to do with why the Bible and prayer is not enough? So I get to answer it um, and then you get to answer it. So the reason you answer second is because if I have any heresy or something, some wrong science, which pastors every <laughs> once in a while do, then you can clean it up. So, you know, so as you were talking and as I was thinking about this question, um, I'm amazed uh, as someone that needs to be more in tune with my body, I'm amazed at how in tune with Jesus's physical body he was. So I start, you know, when he was child, it says, you know, in Luke that he grew um, physically, spiritually in favor with God and man. And I'm, I'm now I'm botching that verse right now, you know, and again, we, we mentioned often that he, um, you know, would, would set some time to pray, but we don't always mention like he ate, he, you know, he was a carpenter, he hung out with fishermen and he was on a fisherman's boat and probably he didn't sit like supervising, like he probably actually helped pull fish up. And I, I guess I say all of that because, you know, as we respond to this question, the, the Bible and prayer are replete with the fact that Jesus had to do things outside of going to the synagogue, going to the temple. There were certain practices in his life that it's biblical to, see all truth as God's truth, especially when it comes to psychology, especially when it comes to neuroscience. So I'm, I'm leaving with the fact that we said, hey, it's not the only solution, but it does give an invitation. And Jesus does give an indirect way of saying, hey, there is something going on in your body and it's okay to be aware of it because when he walked this earth, he was. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Jesus was very attuned to his body and to other bodies and his emotion and the emotions of others um, that he, he, in a sense, he took care of his body, right? So he, you know, he had to eat and he had to sleep, but he also, you know, pushed his body, you know, he's stayed up and prayed, right? So he's doing the spiritual practice, but then there's all these stories about him sleeping on boats in storms. And so, so, you know, and I was kind of wonder what's that about? Uh, well, you know, he was so in tune with his body and he didn't live an anxious life that he could sleep anywhere. And so there was kind of like, well, I need to sleep and I'm not anxious because, you know, or whatever. So I think, you know, he was kind to his body is maybe, you know, maybe not so much the treat yourself, but you know, something, something along those lines, he went, you know, he made water into wine. He liked to go to parties. He got in trouble because he went to a lot of parties. Right. Uh, but he also, you know, wept, um, with Lazarus's sisters, right? And so you see a very, when you start asking these questions, you say, oh, like actually Jesus had a very robust emotional life. 
I just never thought to ask that question before. But now if I am and you're reading the gospels, you're like, oh, like, oh, Jesus is angry or he's compassionate. He's filled with compassion for the people because they're like a, a you know, a sheep without or a, yeah, sheep without a shepherd. And so you hear these uh, emotion languages our um, vocabularies. And so that that's why, you know, scripture becomes richer and it's, it's us who have changed, but Jesus is that model of the perfectly integrated human being who's perfectly living with God. Uh, and so when I teach theology, I often uh, have to emphasize Jesus's humanity. Everyone takes his divinity for granted. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I know some traditions want to like roll back Jesus's divinity, but, uh, and that's bad. Other traditions, like the one I was raised in, kind of neglected Jesus' humanity. And if I'm saved, I'm supposed to live in Christ, and Christ lives in me, uh, then his how he lived in his humanity is really important for me. Uh, and so that's been, over the last 10, 15 years, my own kind of realization. Like, oh, Jesus is really good at helping me know how to live in my humanity with the humanity of other people. Jeff, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, First of all, how can people find you, recommend your podcast, and uh, yeah, tell us tell us all we need to know about Jeff. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, if you're going to find me, you got to know I'm Jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F. So you can find me at jeffreyholsclaw.net. Uh, you can find me on the Being With podcast on neuroscience, spiritual formation of faith. Uh, I also have written a couple books, most recently with my wife, called Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. So we take that kind of storyline throughout the Bible of uh, God with us and kind of relate it to kind of personal practical questions like, does God want, does God like me? Is God sick of me? Um, does God like our bodies? You know, so we just ask all these kind of practical questions. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on Facebook and Twitter and places like that too. Well, love it. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll be tagging some of his resources on our site when this uh, episode comes out. Uh, as always, make sure you subscribe to our email. That's the best way to get a hold of us, whygodwhypodcast.com. It's the best way to get new episodes and even share it with friends. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.